Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we are the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since Bobby Allison won his first championship. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, we're getting rolling again. Uh, It's been a a fun week about racing. Um, It was cool to see Kyle Larson uh, get a victory pretty recently at, uh, at Las Vegas. Um, I, I think I, I, I'm when I tweeted something out about Viva Las Vegas. I was pretty proud of that. Um, but you know, there, there's something about Kyle Larson's driving to me that just you know makes me it reminds me of people from the old school from back in the day. Um, somebody who could just wheel anything he got in. And so this week, the driver of the week is very much like that. Somebody who you know he never raced an Indy car, but I feel like he could have done very well at Indianapolis if he wanted to. Uh, just just chose not to do that, and probably one of the reasons is because he had to serve a little bit of jail time at the peak of his NASCAR career. Um, but you know what? Not terribly unheard of for the 1960s. This week's driver of the week is Junior Johnson. Ben, yeah, Junior, Junior sorry, Johnson, Junior Johnson. You're good, not a problem. Junior Johnson, one of the greatest NASCAR drivers of all time, one of the greatest team owners of all time, uh, one of the greatest breakfast cooks of all time. He uh, had a reputation for, for making these big, grandiose breakfasts at his house uh, just outside North Wilkesboro. Uh, you, you covered the sport you know, at the time when Junior Johnson and Associates, which is the name of his race team, I believe, um, when they were at, at the top, particularly in the mid-1980s and a little bit earlier when they had Darrell Waltrip and Neil Bonnet driving for them. But I'm sure you got some pretty cool memories of Junior Johnson. Oh, I, I do, Aaron. I, I tell you, the, the one thing that comes to mind first about Junior is when you talk to him, uh, he didn't have a whole lot to say. <laughs> he was just, you know, you could say uh, stuff like, how's the car running? It's it, pretty good. You know, he just, <laughs> he just wouldn't really give you a whole lot. And I think that's why he and Kale Yarbrough got along so well when Kale was his driver, because Kale didn't have a whole lot to say, too. You could say to Kale or Junior, the one, how's the car? And, oh, it's okay. Well, can you elaborate on that? elaborate on that a little bit well it's really okay <laughs> they're just you know they just never have a lot to say but man oh man talk about story after story after story of junior we could probably spend the next eight hours just talking about junior because he <laughs> we was might have so to. yeah so down to earth and 
you know, back in the the moonshine days, it was as we talked about before. It was just the way that a lot of mountain folks made a living. They couldn't really uh, uh, do much more. They tried to farm, and the farming prices and stuff like that was down, and just not not doing well at all. And, and moonshine saved not only many families, but but kept, as I've written in the past, many church doors open because a lot of the money that was passed through the plates yeah. uh, for offerings came straight out of moonshine money back in those days. But uh, yeah, Junior, as far as the driver goes, he had gotten so much. Uh, experience on those very winding North Carolina and Virginia uh, mountain roads. He was excellent on a road, road course, of course. And then, uh, yeah, but he he was so, so good behind the wheel. And even at one point, he told me, he said, you know, driving a, a stock car, a race car around a racetrack really, really wasn't all that hard after having done the driving that he did on those mountain roads with no headlights and hairpin turns and you know, so that compared to somewhere like Daytona, I'd say a short track, he was he was very good behind the wheel. I'm pretty sure he probably told you at a, at a phrase, and he probably phrased it like, uh, you know, run from the law or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah I, he did. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me a bit. I got a couple of Junior Johnson stories. One I just discovered recently. So I was looking up um, some, you know, some NASCAR related stories, really more for personal enrichment than anything. And I found this quote from Daryl Waltrip 10 or 11 years ago. You know, Daryl won his last championship with Junior in 1985, driving that famous number 11 car. Um, and it was about that time that, you know, teams were starting to build cars. You know, you had your, your super speedway car, you had a short track car, and you might have a road course car for when they ran at Riverside. But uh, so Daryl was talking to Junior one time about, you know, well, this car handles pretty good here, but, you know, then we go, you know, somewhere else, say Michigan, and it doesn't drive near as good. And Junior just looked at him and said, boy, that car, I don't know where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. Yeah. He, you know, I love Junior from the fact that he, he was a moonshiner and then he was a team owner or driver, excuse me. And then he was mm-hmm. a team owner and you just never saw a variance in Junior at all. And when you did talk to him about any of that stuff, he'd tell you honest answers, tell you a lot of things that, uh, you know that maybe he didn't quite make the uh, the headlines or whatever in the newspapers, but just an amazing. I mean, we lost Junior a year or two ago, yep. sadly, and man, I tell you what, I was just really heartbroken because he's just a a fun guy to sit down and talk to, and just just as quiet and and laid back as he could be. And I remember one time someone asked him when they were on his land out there, and in, in, it's actually in Rhonda, which is not far from North Wilkesboro, okay. where the shop and all that was. Yeah. But it, but they said, well, how much of this is yours? He said, everything that's green, that's mine. You know, <laughs> as far as the grass, yeah. as far as you can see, everything that's green. He was just a neat guy. It's hard to describe him in just a few minutes because, oh my gosh, he just brought so much. And you know, the big, very quickly, Aaron, the big thing I think that as far as his contribution to NASCAR was, you know, when in 1970, late 70, he was looking to get RJR, uh, RJ Reynolds as a sponsor just for his race car. Yep. And he went to talk to them about it. And this is at a time when uh, tobacco advertising was not allowed or was not going to be allowed the next year on television. So they needed an outlet to uh, RGR did to, you know, to promote their products. And as it turned out, Junior told him, said, you don't need to be sponsored my one car. You need to call Bill France Sr. and sponsor the whole uh, series. And they did that from from 1971 to 2003 and and that's honestly what saved NASCAR I think 
in some of those years had had Winston not come along, we might not have had a NASCAR because Winston RGR brought in millions and millions of dollars to this. They they painted buildings and they paved racetracks and they paved roads and they just spent a ton getting it brought up to a professional level. And they cut out a bunch of the race, uh, the short tracks. There was 50, 55 races sometimes a year. Yep. You can imagine that a lot of them during the week and things like that. And so they trimmed it back down to like 29, 30 races, just brought a little more professionalism to it. And, but it was all because of junior Johnson for sure. There's no question. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's a stretch to say Junior is probably one of the five most influential people that NASCAR has ever seen for those very reasons that you enumerated, Ben. You know, because you bring up a great point. When Junior, you know, was trying to get the sponsorship with Winston and then he kind of does an about face and, you know, says, you know, that you guys need to sponsor the whole series. It was an even bigger deal because, you know, yeah, they absolutely saved NASCAR because it wasn't but a couple years after that that there was, um, you know, another economic downturn, uh, a gas shortage. Some of the races had to even be shortened by a little bit. Um, and having that money from RJ, RJ Reynolds was a, a huge, huge catalyst. I think them and uh, just really Richard Petty's presence was probably what kept NASCAR going uh, for several, you know, pretty lean years economically in the sport. Right. Um, but yeah, Junior Johnson, uh, if you guys like reading about NASCAR or if you're new to NASCAR or if you've been following NASCAR for decades, doesn't matter. My favorite piece of racing journalism with respect to myself and Ben is Tom Wolfe's story, The Last American Hero. Uh, it's by, it's about Junior Johnson. If you Google it, I think you can, I'm sure you can find it. It's, it's very well known. It's fantastically written. Um, he, this guy immerses himself in the North Carolina mountain culture and, you know, learns about Junior Johnson. This is when Junior's close to wrapping it up and as his, as a driver and getting into just being an owner. But it's a fantastic story that really is a sign of the times of the early to mid-1960s uh, that shows you the kind of rough-and-tumble rough era that we had in NASCAR about 50 or so years ago. Uh, so that's a fantastic read. But it is a tragedy for all the people who never got to meet Junior um, and, and got to understand what kind of person Junior Johnson was been because, yeah, he was a great driver. He was a great crew chief. You know, he was, uh, he was a great crewman. He was a great engine builder. He was, he had everything. He, he knew how to make a car run fast. We've said before on here on a lifetime in NASCAR that, um, when you went to North Wilkesboro, if you didn't win, you failed in Junior Johnson's eyes if you were driving mm -hmm. one of his cars because that's that's home base. You don't lose on home base. And for quite a while there, they, they really didn't. Um, but there's another side of Junior Johnson that we've touched on, and that's his entrepreneurial side, uh, which, and I'm not talking about as a race driver, you know, the, the selling moonshine, the making moonshine. So, Ben, I first met Junior at Wilkesboro in 91. I was three. It's the first time I ever went to a racetrack. This was qualifying for the Tyson Holly Farms 400. Mentioned that a couple times before. But cool thing about meeting Junior, I still have a picture with him. Um, but years later, so uh, fast forward 23 years, fall race at Martinsville 2014. Uh, Junior was there just kind of, you know, hanging out, seeing old friends. Um, I was there covering the race for Speed Sport Magazine. Dale Jr. won it. Uh, so another North Carolina guy. His only win at Martinsville in the Cup Series. Um, but I was writing this story in the morning, probably about 9.30, 10 a.m. Um, there had just been a press conference with Jeff Gordon. So I was writing this Jeff Gordon story. And the seat beside me in the media center was empty. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I'm writing and, you know, somebody sits down and I'm not really paying attention. I'm, I'm locked in. You know, um, if, if you've ever written any sort of journalism or anything or no matter what your profession is, you just get to that point where you're just kind of in the zone and everything that's going on around you just just doesn't apply anymore. So I'm in this zone and I hear these people kind of talking around me and um, there's one or two people beside me and then there's two or three people beside me. There's four or five people beside me. And finally, I'm like, who is this? So I turned and just looked to the left and Junior Johnson sitting beside me. Um, <laughs> How about that? So, you know, I, I let them, I let him and his friends catch up. And of course, people just want to come up and, you know, basically pay homage to, to Junior Johnson um, mm-hmm. as he's just kind of sitting there hanging out. So he does for a little while. I finish the story. I post it. Um, and so he and I start talking. Um and I, I just, I was really just making small talk, but the conversation was so cool. I just kind of subtly hit record on my iPhone um, because it, it wasn't really an interview. It was just, you know, talking, but it was so cool mm-hmm. to listen to Junior. And I asked him who was the most aggressive driver he ever saw. And he said Earnhardt, but he didn't say Dale Earnhardt. He said Ralph Earnhardt. Oh, In wow. Junior Johnson's words, Ralph Earnhardt was ruthless. He, he mm-hmm. told me he would wreck you. He would do whatever it took to gain another spot on the racetrack. He was ruthless. He was a good race driver. He was a smart race driver, but he was ruthless. And mm. before this conversation ended, Ben, I had to do I had to do my journalistic duty, you could say. I had to ask him. I had been curious for years, as some of you guys listening may think. Junior Johnson sold all of this moonshine. What was the most popular flavor that he had? Mm, so I asked him, and I was like, Junior. So I had to ask him that. I was like, Junior, what's, you know, I know you sold all this for a long time. What, what was it? What was your big, what was your big money maker? And he was like, Oh, apple pie. And mm. I was like, You like apple pie flavors? Like, yeah, apple pie flavor. And I was like, How well that do? And he's like, Well, I sold peach and cherry pretty good, but I'd sell four apple pies for every peach and cherry I'd sell. So, however they made it, I have no idea that you could make moonshine taste like apple pie. Apparently, you could, and Junior Johnson perfected it, not unlike how he perfected short track cars and super speedway cars uh, Mm -hmm. in his era as an owner. But, yeah, just such a cool personality, Ben. And I bet you, me telling you that story probably reminds you of another one with Junior. Oh, yeah. There there is one that I always uh, think back on, and, and he told me this many years ago, but I still laugh every time I tell it, but there was a time, you know, let me back up. His father, uh, really was into the moonshine business. I mean, majorly big time into it. And there Mm -hmm. was a raid in the Johnson house in 1935 where they got some, I don't remember the exact number, like 10 or 12,000 gallons of of moonshine. And it was in the, it was in the closets. It was in the attic. And he even, and Junior even said to go to bed at night, we had to crawl over the boxes to get to the bed. <laughs> but there was a story to where one of the, I, I think Junior is probably, I'm guessing, six, seven years old. And his f- brother, Fred, right about that same age, a couple mm-hmm. years younger, I think. And so this revenue comes to the uh, to the home. And, and this is not the same time as the raid, of course. It's just they were just looking for his dad. And it comes up with a suit and tie and the, and the little fedora hat. And he says, I'm looking for your dad. He said, oh, no, sir, I can't ever tell you where my dad's at. I was told not to ever stay. And I said, well, you know, I really need to talk to him. You sure you can't tell me? He said, no, sir, I've been told never, never tell where he's at. So he said, I'll tell you what. Now, this is 1935, okay? Uh-huh. So yeah. he pulls out two $5 bills. 
And he says, I'll tell you what, I said, I'll pay each of you boys a $5 bill if you'll tell me who, where your daddy's at. And they both looked at each other. And I keep in mind, they're kind of young. Mm-hmm. Their eyes get real big. I said, okay, we do that. He said, well, no, no, you need to tell me where he is now, and then I'll give you the money when I come back. And Junior looked at him and said, you better pay us now because when I tell you where he's at, you ain't coming back. <laughs> and you know, it was just – yeah, and he said I was really dead serious because if you, if I send you up that mountain where my dad and all that all that moonshine and all those steels are, I said yeah. you ain't coming back. You need to pay me now. So right. it just uh, there's a thousand Junior Johnson stories like that where, and they're all true. I mean, honestly, they're oh my gosh, there's so so many of them. But I just a, a, an interesting gentleman like you said, like you found out when he sat beside of you. He never met a stranger. I mean, if you ask him a question he'd answer you as honestly as he could mm-hmm. and um just a just a, a great person i really miss him i you know like i say we lost him a couple of years ago and i think something will spark a thought or two about junior to me sometimes and just think man i sure miss him he was a good guy if you uh if you guys want to watch an old race on youtube like i do if you if you share that passion ben if you share that passion i'm not sure if you do that i'm going to suggest one oh, for yeah, you I do. this is this is good view <laughs> it's required viewing for anybody the 1991 Winston Legends race at Charlotte Motor Speedway. This is not a shameless self-plug in any way whatsoever. Um, so in 91, Humpy Wheeler and the Speedway wanted to come up with something to happen before the Winston that year. And this was the last year it was during the day at Charlotte. And so they came up with this idea of getting all these old-timey race car drivers, these legends of the sport, together to race on this new car. Uh, front stretch quarter mile track they had built they had paved um that was uh loosely based on bowman gray stadium and so they had i think it was the fast track racing school which was around then they built uh some fords some pontiacs some oldsmobiles some race cars for all these old school drivers i mean it was a who's who of legends you had junior johnson kale yarborough larry frank elmo langley uh, tim flock richard childress uh, just so many, you know, legendary race car drivers in this race on this little, you know, quarter mile racetrack. Um, so you knew they would just start beating and banging. Well, they run this race and it is, I'm telling you guys, this is the coolest freaking race I've seen on YouTube, period. F1, NASCAR, IndyCar, anything. It is number one. Uh, I wish so badly that I would have gone, but I probably wouldn't remember it because I was only three and this was still, you know, four months or so before I went to a racetrack. But, um, Junior Johnson did not win this race, Ben, but Junior Johnson ran into or got hit by about everybody in the field. Um, <laughs> he got any any lingering effects of him wanting to drive a race car, and he got all that out of his system in that race, which I thought was so cool. He, uh, You remember they had those TV panels inside the car on the dash? You know, like the CBS really did it very common, where like you'd, you'd see at the mm-hmm. top in, in, in red with white lettering, it's Dale Earnhardt, and then a GM oh, yeah, right, logo yeah. and, and the RCR logo. Well, they did them for some of these guys, too, which I thought was really a really cool touch. Uh, Childress had his, you know, and Childress is wearing a good wrench helmet and everything. And Junior mm-hmm. Johnson, where his name should say Junior Johnson, it just says Dumplin. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know the, the story behind it. I don't, unfortunately. Um, but Junior runs into everything in that race, um, wrecks four or five times, and I think he's still finished. Uh, Elmo yeah. Langley winds up winning it. Sorry to spoil it, but it doesn't matter. You guys are going to love it regardless. Uh, super, super cool race that Junior was a part of. And after the race, of course, you know, everybody's going to talk to the winner and they're going to talk to Junior Johnson. And he was yeah. the one who held court no matter where he finished. 
Yeah. And, you know, talking to the late T. Wayne Robertson, who was in charge of RJ Reynolds for so many years, and sadly we lost him in a, in a boating accident. Uh, not, well, I don't remember the year. I'm sorry. I don't remember. It was uh, late January, 98. 98, yeah. And, man, I just thought the world of him, too. But he was telling me that they spent a lot of money. That Fast Track, I think, did build some of the cars, but, but RJ Reynolds put a lot of money in that race. He said, we had so much sheet metal after it was over. It was unreal. I bet. And the drivers... I don't know if they paid them appearance money or whatever, but they got them to come and then they got out there on that quarter mile. I remember I was there to see it and I, I it was a lot of fun. What got me though was that all the talent and all the legendary yeah, drivers had, had gotten back together to try this. And I think the idea was they were going to do it annually for several years, but the problem was it just was so expensive after it was over with. They, they promised that if they tore up anybody's cars that they'd repair them and Maybe they borrowed. I think they borrowed some cars from some teams, but with that promise that if we, if anybody gets, and you knew it had to be, you knew it's going to get torn all to pieces. Oh, absolutely. They they spent a lot of money on that race, but yeah, I remember Elmo uh, won it, and I, I was covering for NASCAR scene at the time, and I walked up to, after the race is over, great honor, but I, I stuck my head in the window of Kale Yarbrough's car. Kale finished second, I think. He did. And uh, he said, you know, he said, he got me on the inside. I couldn't believe it. He he passed me and got me. You know, he was pretty fired. But I'm here. I'm just practically sitting in the car with, with Kale, you know, after mm-hmm. the thing's over with. I thought, how cool is this? And it was just fun. One of those deals that no points on the line, but you got a chance if you ever wanted to see what it was like uh, for Tim Flock to drive or, say, um, a Frank Mundy, for instance, or uh, Larry Frank or, or some of those guys. Yeah. You had a chance to actually see them perform on the racetrack. Now, granted, it wasn't the 1.5-mile track. It was the smaller one. But I'm telling you what, they were out for, you know, they, it was not they, – they were out for, for blood, I guess, is a good <laughs> way to put it, because they just – man, I'm telling you, they were as competitive – on that little short track as they were back in the day when they were winning races and, and doing what they did best. But yeah, a lot of fun for sure. If I'm not mistaken, I think Buck Baker drove in that race too. Somebody absolutely junked their car and I think it might've been Buck Baker, which is ironic so. because Buck Baker ran a driving school then. Not that he didn't deserve it. A former bus driver who became a NASCAR legend in the early years. Um, but yeah, you know, so this, this brings me, this, this makes me think, Ben, you know, they did this again. It was brought back, not at Charlotte, but Bristol in 2009 and 2010. They put them in uh, basically late model or super late model chassis. Um, and you had guys, Kale did it, Larry Pearson did it, Rusty Wallace, Dave Marcus, Rick Wilson. Uh, quite a few guys did it. Probably never going to happen again because in the 2010 race, uh, Larry Pearson, I think he slid down the track, spun, slid down the track at Bristol which is called a self-cleaning track because, you know, it, it's so banked. You just slide down the track if you hit something. Slid down the track. He, he either got hit or he T-boned somebody, one or the other, I can't remember, and got hurt pretty bad, and mm-hmm. that put the kibosh on that event um, probably permanently. But, yeah. you know, we're bench racing here. Bench racing, by definition. Something I had heard for years, Ben, never really learned the, the, the definition of until last few years for whatever reason. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Bench racing is the act of coming up with ideas and BSing about a particular racing series or sport. It could be motorcycles, race cars, anything. Um, and just, you know, basically doing what we're doing. Talking about, you know, what 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 happened and what could have been. So, you know, we talk, we advertise that, I think, in the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast about where the sport's been and where it'll go. Well, here's one where it could have gone. Ben, I'm going to give you... 
a minute if you want to make a field of 10 guys. So if we did this race now, if we did a Winston Legends race now, and I'm even going to let Winston, they, they can still sponsor it. I don't mind. I'm fine with that on the front stretch quarter mile and just say 10 cars. Who would you say are 10 guys now who would be applicable to that field then as far as Legends are concerned? Oh, well, yeah. Um, well, a couple that come to mind immediately – would have to be uh, Jeff Gordon and Rusty Wallace. Some of those guys, yeah. every time they got on a short track, they'd beat and bang. And I remember once at Bristol that uh, Jeff Gordon pretty much got in the back of Rusty and went on to win the race there. They're, that was my first two, race at Bristol, 2002. Yeah, yeah that, those two come to mind immediately. You know, another one that comes to mind that, that could actually do really well pushing the throttle if he needed to, of course, is Ricky Rudd. I talked to Ricky recently, had a great conversation with him. That's cool. That's a good one. Yeah, Ricky would be one I would choose for that race. Uh, How about Dale Jarrett? That'd be my Oh, pick. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Dale Jarrett would be a good one. Uh, and, and keep in mind, if you called him and you had all the pieces of this puddle set and said, oh, by the way, we're going to pay you 50 grand to come, <laughs> there's no way those guys will not come. Because, <laughs> yeah, I bet. You know, and, and, uh, aside from a sprained ankle or a broken ankle or something like that they did on the honeydew list, they'd be there. They, yeah. You know, there is no question. And there's another one that comes to mind. Kyle Petty, I think, would be kind of fun. KP would be a lot of fun. I think to, Kyle to still see. does a radio show at the Speedway. He used to if he doesn't. I think he still does, but with yeah. PRN. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to see those guys mix it up, man. I mean, that's just five names, I think, off the top of well, my head. Yeah. The Labonis yeah. would be great. Uh-huh. Um, I think they would be yeah. awesome. Uh, if Sterling was okay, I think I'd love, I'd love to see Sterling mix it up there. Sterling's another absolute legend on the short tracks in Tennessee. Um, this is tough. I like posing yeah. the question. See, because I, Ben, if I ask you, then I don't have to answer and then it's easy. So I can come up with a question. <laughs> there you go. Thanks I, a lot. I come up with a question, you know, and yeah, I just let, put you, me on the spot. but you know, uh, a bunch, man, you know, you, I know you can handle it. So. Um, yeah, no who's a couple more? Who's a couple more we could throw in there? Oh, well, you know what? Here's one we're just totally, absolutely forgetting about, and I'm embarrassed to say it. Mark Martin. We got to get Mark Martin in there. Yeah, Mark would honestly, if I had to put the chips down, I'd probably pick Mark or Rusty to win. Um, yes. Not, and, and that's no disrespect to any of them. And, and we've got nine. We might as well have ten. Nobody hey, else. Got you. Got to throw in Tony Stewart. Dale Junior. Dale Junior would would be great. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you got to have at least 12. I said 10. It's not Dale Jr. and Tony Stewart are musts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then somebody who's somebody, uh, you know what? I'll tell you another one would be fun to see. He, he uh, cut his teeth at Concord Short Track, even though he's not from, from uh, North Carolina. Put Ernie Irvin behind the wheel. I'd like to see Ernie yeah. out there too, man. That is a field right there, Ben, of 12 guys. Uh-huh. Like I say, just based on how um, aggressive he is, Rusty would either win the race or he would have the Junior Johnson 91 type day where he brought back nothing but the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. You know, I mean, in a way, you said Tony Stewart. It made me think, you know, what what Tony and Ray Evernham are putting together Yep. Uh, for the six races, I believe, if I'm not mistaken on that. And uh, so that's kind of like similar to that, but where you pull some guys back out of retirement and, and, and maybe, you know, mix it up and see how that's going to go. It's going to be fun to see how that goes. But, yeah, talking about Gordon and Rusty and Ricky and, I mean, you know, these guys, they were so much fun to cover in the 80s and 90s and just down to earth. That's what I love about the sport. You could go down there and talk to them yeah. and, and just have some fun. I, I got to share a funny story real fast. We can move on to, to a, a few more topics. There's no rush, man. This. No rush. Okay, all right. Uh, now, I may have told this. I don't remember, but I was at Bristol, 1991, first year that I was 
full-time with NASCAR scene. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, the great Steve Wade, who is our executive editor, sent us down to check on some drivers after the race. Now, Ricky Rudd and Sterling Marlin had been beaten and banging pretty heavily there at Bristol all afternoon, and and you knew there was going to be some tempers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I get down there, but let me let me back up. I, I digress here for a second. I, the night before, I get to the racetrack. I, I get to the hotel, and I say, "Crap! I forgot. I'm supposed to wear this pair of dark." like jeans, these uh, black jeans to go with uh, the NASCAR scene and illustrated shirts. So like, crap, I forgot them. So I went to a local Kmart and I, I bought a pair of black jeans. Well, as it turned out, I didn't try them on because it said my, my waist size and the length size looked right. Okay. Okay. I put them on the next morning. They are so big. I mean, it's unreal how big these pants are. So I said, well, I don't, I got to go. I got to find a belt, you know, pull it tight got to go. Okay. So here I am. This is where I'm back to the end of the race. I come from the press box. I race down there and I'm running as hard as I can to get down there to, to talk to Sterling and to Ricky. And I'm hold, trying to hold my pants up. So my, my pants don't fall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I get down there and this is when I, you could cross, uh, I had to cross over the racetrack and I get down in the garage and, and, and Sterling and Ricky are nose to nose. Okay. They are just like yelling at each other in the garage. And I, I walk up and I was so out of breath and I'll never forget how the two of them, they looked at each other and then unison looked at me I was like, are you okay? <laughs> they, stopped, they stopped arguing well, about what was going on on the racetrack to check all these. Like, now these are two guys that just raced 500 laps, hard as they could go around Bristol. And they stopped their argument to look at me to make sure I was okay. <laughs> I, I told them, I said, look, you guys go ahead and you argue just a little bit more. And let me catch you my breath. This is all true. I can't make this stuff up. You, you defused uh, a fight, Ben. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I mean, I was just so embarrassed. I couldn't, my pants were about to fall down. And um, I got to get them to, to take a break from their, their argument to make sure I'm okay because I'm out of breath. It took us 11 episodes to cover that Ben's pants diffused a fight. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so embarrassed. I, the tag, in all honesty, the tag was wrong on the jeans. Okay. Oh, okay. It, said, okay. it said a different waist size than what I wear or wore at the time. And uh, you're I'm in a hurry. You, I mean, yeah. it's like I'm the first guy in NASCAR history to to right to disrupt an argument in the garage area because my pants were too big and I was out of breath. So there you go. That's that uh, uh, defies description. <laughs> I'm telling you, what can I say? You know, uh, it's you, hey, you know, that's you never know what you're going to get on this show. Okay, I, I don't even know how to follow that up now. I mean, that's I don't know what story can top. You know, the, the fact that you're you know that. I'm just I'm just envisioning these like dark denim like giant parachute pants and this guy like you know huffing yeah. down because I mean you know Bristol's always high bank so it oh, doesn't yeah. matter if you're going and I've 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 crossed the track many times before and if you it doesn't matter if you're going up or downhill it, it's still a hike and you it still feel it uh, yeah. when when you when you're doing it and you're in a hurry so I know exactly what you mean I'm just envisioning like. I mean, it's almost like a movie. Like these two guys are like about to fight, and they just both look at look at you, and they look back at each <laughs> other. Gonna, you know, I just like, can't make this stuff up. What, what were we you. fighting about? Look at his pants. Is that guy all I right? I mean, I know. and he's out of breath. And you know, and let's say this: the pants that I had on that day probably would fit me better today than they did then. Where, do you but, still have them? They need to be in the Hall oh, of Fame. I, I don't know. I need to. I named to frame them and put them in the lunchroom or something. I don't know, but oh, man, uh, I got, just, those got to go to Winston Kelly. Those got to go to the Hall of Fame. So. You know, you gotta, got the Ben White just, exhibit. 
Yeah, it was just one of those funny times <laughs> that I actually, I, I mean, they're really mad at each other. And I'm just, this is the way the thing got diffused. <laughs> you know, I bet, anyway, I bet nobody, yeah, I bet nobody, and I ain't enough said, that's perfect, man. I don't, I don't know <laughs> if, the, I highly doubt that, I mean, like imagine if Chase Elliott and Denny Hamlin are face to face and about the brawl at Martinsville and somebody runs up there and these big old pants don't fit them. And because I'm assuming you also had your notepad or your tape oh, recorder yeah. in your hand too, like you're trying to record and you know observe this fight, and yeah. you know they're just like, you know, God, what are we fighting about? Look at this guy, that's <laughs> well, fantastic. I, was, I don't. They weren't as worried about the pants as they were the fight. I just couldn't catch my breath. But I do remember <laughs> saying to them, "Just you guys go ahead and argue. I'll be with you just a minute." <laughs> <laughs> were, were there other? I'm assuming there are other reporters around too. Um, oh no! I, actually, I got there before anybody else did. I mean, I was like huffing it. I, I really got nobody was there at the time. I'm it impressed. Was just me and me and them, and it's like they were so caring. I just you know that's what touched me. They were just so caring about <laughs> about me. So there you go. All right, there's your track fact, uh, obscure track fact for the day. That that's that's a lot of things. <laughs> it is. That's, that is that is fantastic. I can't believe it took us eleven episodes to we know, buried I, we buried I, the I, lead, man. Came out. We I, buried came out the lead no bad on this one. Because um, <laughs> so did you did you ever tell Steve or did you tell Deb Williams this? Did, did they know this story? Oh yeah. Matter of fact, I, I might have. I can't. I'm pretty sure. Now that I think about it, it was probably Deb Williams that sent me down there, not Steve. Okay. But still, yeah, we've laughed about that one for years. I just saw Deb in the office last week or, or two weeks yeah. ago. Now I got to bring this up the next time yeah. I see her. Ask her. Ask her. She remember, remembers the day I just about lost my pants at Bristol. She'll she'll get a kick out of that. She'll probably say, "Yeah, I was talking with Winston Kelly and I saw him in the Hall of Fame last week." Um, that, that's that's how I'm hoping it's going to go. So here's yeah. a question, Ben. Okay. So what year was this? This would have been 91. So, and it was, uh, well, the spring race of 91, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so that would, uh, um, so he was, Sterling was actually driving for our driver of the week, Junior Johnson, at the yeah. time in the old Maxwell House 22 car. That car was so cool. I actually met Sterling that later that year. Um, man, I w- wish I would have known that story then. Um, <laughs> even three-year-old <laughs> me would have got a kick out of that. Uh, but uh you know, so many good drivers drove for Junior Johnson. Many of them drove the 11 car. Um, mm-hmm. This being episode 11, I think that's a big reason why we wanted to highlight Junior Johnson head and shoulders above everybody else who's driven the 11 car. Uh, but Ben and your crack research team of one, um, you have <laughs> uncovered some of the other legends who have piloted a double one on the door of their race car. Who are some other people that are some big names who did well in the 11 car? Well, and, and there there are several actually. Uh, and by the way, when you when you say number eleven, obviously it's the easiest number you can paint on a race car. All you got to do is, you know, just tape off two strips on the door, two strips on the top, get a little spray paint, and you're you're good, right? It's Saves money. Easy. So, yeah. So there's probably a lot of guys on the short tracks I know that have used number eleven. But uh, Parnelli Jones was the first driver in NASCAR competition to win using the number eleven, and huh. he did it at. Bremerton, Washington, which is a, what I guess you would say would be a NASCAR West, Winston West type race. Yeah. But back in the fifties, they would they would have races all over uh, the United States, uh, obviously where you could get points. Some, but now you might be racing on the East Coast. Some of the guys and the West Coast guys would be over there, but all the points were going in the same pot. If that makes any sense. So 
uh, Bremerton, Washington, and it was on an airstrip at a county airport, believe it or not. It's, I might be saying this wrong. Kitsap, K-I-T-S-A-P, County Airport. Mm-hmm. It was an 80-mile race, and that was uh, August 4th, 1957. And then there's been some other drivers who have been very successful over the years. Of course, Mario Andretti won the Daytona 500 on February 26, 1967, 10 years later. Yep. Uh, and it was a Holman Mooney Ford that, by the way, some people may not know this, that particular Ford was reskinned later on and put a Mercury body on it. And that was the first car that Darrell Waltrip drove in 1972 at Talladega. Did that, you know that? That was Mario Andretti's car before that. That was Mario Andretti's car That's with awesome. a new body on it. I don't yeah. think anybody knew that. I don't think Mario Andretti knew that. <laughs> he probably did. And uh, so if, if you look at the number, uh, number 11, 224 wins in NASCAR competition, including... 44 of those wins with Denny Hamlin. And Denny, by the way, also leads the list of drivers who have won the Daytona 500 using the number 11. Also, he did it in 2020, 2019, and 2016. Uh, And then you got 1977 winner Kale Yarborough, and then, as I mentioned, Mario Andretti in 67. So uh, at number 11, I'll throw this in also. Kale Yarborough has 55 wins in the car. Ned Jarrett, 49. Denny Hamlin, 44, Darrell Walter at 43. And guess who has 11 wins with the number 11? Junior Johnson. That's awesome. So how about that? Hey, that's that's good stuff. Yeah, and, and you know, he's recent, he's current, but he's also, he's been around so long, Denny Hamlin, uh, talking about. He's, he's done so many things. He hasn't won a championship, Ben, but, you know, just to touch on Denny Hamlin and his influence in the sport, um, as a driver, the first time I saw Denny race, I think it was 2005 in a bush race at Bristol, the fall bush series race. My gosh, what a field this was. You had cup guys, you had Newman, Biffle, Dale Jr. You had bush series guys, Kyle Busch, uh, Martin Truex Jr., Denny Hamlin, all of them in the top 10, mixing it up. Heck of a heck of a field. Mm-hmm. I think Newman won the race, if I'm not mistaken. Newman and Biffle did. Um, I'm the, I was the king in the mid-2000s. If I went to a race, Greg Biffle probably won. Um, I later told Greg that and he offered me tickets to the rest of the season. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, um, even then you could see this guy had it. Like I didn't know much about Denny Hamlin. Um, uh, my earliest memories of Denny Hamlin, Ben, are that race at Bristol driving the number 20 at Rockwell Automation Chevy for Joe Gibbs Racing. And do you remember MySpace? Did you have a MySpace, uh-huh. Ben? Uh, I remember it. I don't know that I had it. <laughs> okay, I, w- I would be surprised if you did, but I've ar- you've already surprised me a couple times in this episode. So hey, <laughs> um, so on MySpace, I had a MySpace. I was I was seventeen then, and so I had a MySpace page, and you could follow, add friends, whatever you called it at the time. And so I remembered seeing Dale Junior's top friends, and one of them was Denny Hamlin, and you could give yourself like a little title or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know. Social media fifteen years ago, we didn't know what we were doing. We don't know what we're doing now. Um, it changes every day. Well, it was changing then. So I, I remember I had just heard of Denny Hamlin. He's a rookie. He was, you know, he hadn't been on the scene very long at all in, in NASCAR period above the late model level. And one of Dale Jr.'s top friends on MySpace was Denny Hamlin. His title was PIMP. And I just thought that was so <laughs> cool, funny, and obnoxious, um, mm-hmm. which is perfect to appeal to a 17 year old. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, so I was like, man, who is this guy? And, if you recall, Ben, he didn't have a ton of success in the Bush Series driving this 20 car. 
But then he gets moved up to Cup uh, late 05. Joe Gibbs um, pushed, he, uh, I think he released uh, the late, great Jason Leffler, and he promoted Denny Hamlin, this unproven guy, this, this Southern dude from Virginia. Uh, Denny Hamlin, Chesterfield, Virginia, as he would say on the driver intros. Um, they, they move up, Denny, he moves up Denny Hamlin. He wins a pole in like his fourth start. Like this card ran 30th most of the year. And I remember thinking like, who is this guy? Like, is he really this good? And he was. Ben, honestly, there's only been two rookies, maybe ever, who were championship contenders as rookies. Jimmy Johnson in 02 and Denny Hamlin in 06. People forget Denny Hamlin, he had a he had a shot to win the championship, even down the last couple races of the chase in his first season. That is incredible. Like yep, for sure all is. the success Chase has had. All the success all these young guys have had. Jeff Gordon, all these guys, none of them were remote championship contenders in their first season. And Denny Hamlin, he caught, had he caught a couple breaks, he could have been a rookie champion. Um, and, you know, that goes to show the, the amount of skill that he has. He's also uh, the longest tenured driver, active driver in the Cup Series with the same car, the same number. He's been that 11 car since the fall of 2005, so a long time. Denny's getting to the point, Ben, where if he runs a couple more years, he's going to race against somebody he was born after his first start. <laughs> How about that? That's interesting. Uh, but, yeah, you know, a, a gentleman, uh, and again, we've, we've talked about several we've lost in this sport, but we love them dearly and that we've lost several. Uh, but J.D. Gibbs was the yeah. person very instrumental in putting Denny in the car and J.D. went to his dad, Joe, and said, you just really need to look at this kid. And, and uh, sure, untested on the, on the late model circuit and stuff. But, I mean, he was influential in getting J.D. in the car. And lo and behold, like like you said, immediately there was success there. And, and that's so important. We talk about this on other, sh- other shows, but it's so important to have the right chemistry among the crew and the driver and the team, everything, you know, you can throw a million dollars, $2 million, whatever at these race cars. But if you don't have the right chemistry between a driver and a crew chief and such, then it's not going to get you anywhere. And there, there was just something that clicked about Denny, but you know, Denny was a fan of Joe Gibbs back even as a teenager. And we've seen on some race yeah, broadcasts, that autograph session. He went yeah, there. Yeah. Right. The photos of the two of them together and not knowing how, what his fate would have it. They would end up driving for Joe and be so successful. But yeah, Denny, uh, he, he, you know, he's, he's obviously a very, very good race car driver. Love to see him win a championship. You know, there's been a lot of good drivers that didn't, however, win one. And, and of course, Mark Martin was come close, like what, six times, finish second or something yeah, at to least. at least that and didn't make a championship run fireball roberts was another one the the dale earnhardt so to speak of the 1960s or you could say you know uh the opposite of that where earnhardt was the fireball roberts of the season whatever you know but yeah. they were both very good but they you know fireball didn't win a championship so sure i i hope Danny can get one before his career ends but hey he's still doing well he's got a great car i don't think retirement of the R words in his vocabulary, even though he's part of this new team with Bob Wallace and Michael Jordan, I don't think it's immediate that he'll still race a few more years and you never know. He might add a couple more Daytona 500s and a championship to his resume. We'll see. It wouldn't surprise me, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I picked Danny to win the 500 this year on the podcast and uh, had his pit stop been a little less good on the last green flag stop that got him so far ahead. Yeah. He, he couldn't keep the draft. I don't think anybody would have cleared him. I understand that there's always, 
you know, restrictor plate racing now, super speedway racing, whatever you want to call it now, it's, it's very different. There's so much pushing and beating bang on the last couple laps that typically whoever's leading is in the fence or wins. I just don't think anybody could have made those kind of moves on Logano and Keselowski. Uh, the, the ones they made, I don't think they could have made those on Denny Hamlin. That 11 car was too stout. I and mean, he often is. He's uh, He has really taken, you know, a lot of people will tell you that Jeff Gordon took the super speedway mantle from Dale Earnhardt, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. took the super speedway mantle from Jeff Gordon. It looked like for a long time there that Denny, that, that Joey Logano kind of took the super speedway mantle from Dale Jr., but I think if you look at the, the recent history, there's enough to speak to the fact that Denny Hamlin has taken that mantle from Dale Earnhardt Jr., um, drivers, I've heard so many drivers say this. I think Junior was the first to say it, but, um, you know, in, in every picture on the restrictor plate races, Denny's always at the finish, whether he's in first or he's in second or he's in third. And it's so true. And it's so impressive that he's able to do that. And mm-hmm. it, among the roster of guys who have driven the 11 car and had all that success, Denny's right up there. You know, uh, Junior Johnson had some success in an 11 car and, and a lot as an owner. Um, we, we've only touched on him today, but Ned Jarrett, uh, of Hickory, North Carolina, city where I was born. Um, Ned Jarrett was a phenomenal race driver as well in that 11 car about 40 years before Denny. I think Ned retired at the end. Was it 65, Ben? If it, 60, into 66. So, yeah, 40 years before Denny got started. and He, mm-hmm. he was the 11 car. So it seems like it's always been in good hands, you know? And that, that's a, it's a number that's had so much success. Um, I guess while we're still trying to get sponsorship for the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast, Ben, I'm going to make a motion that um, today's episode, we're going to go like Sesame Street rules, man. Today's episode is brought to you by the number 11 because there's so mm-hmm. many there's so many legends who have ha- had this number adorn their race cars. Right. And so many times, mean, you could spend hours talking about just Junior yeah, Johnson you or well, just Ned Jarrett or Danny Hamlin or even other guys who have done it too. Sure. And you know what? There's one other quick one we could end on as far as the number 11 part is I had uh, many chances, as you have, to talk to Junior Johnson. But one time I just asked him point blank. I said, so Kale ran the number 11. Daryl Walter, Walter ran the number 11. Uh, you know, you had a lot of success with number 11 championships and all. I said, so what's the story behind the 11? <laughs> and, it, and I was, you know, recorders on, pads out, pins ready. Yeah. He's like, Oh, well, I don't know. It was just available. <laughs> it was like, come on, Junior. You got to give me some kind of story as to why you ran the 11 or why did you choose it? And he said, no, that's the truth. He said, I was just looking down the list and Bobby Allison, you know, to, to back up a little bit, Bobby ran in 1972 with Coca-Cola as a sponsor mm-hmm. using number 12. So Bobby continued using number 12 because that's what Coke wanted. Number 11 was available. So he just dropped from 12 to 11 and ran 11, and the rest is history, as they say. But I was just really expecting him to say, well, you know, on a on a cold, dark night in, under the moon, I, the, the number 11 appeared in the sky, whatever the story was going to be. And it's like, nope, it was just available. <laughs> it's like, okay, thanks a lot, Junior. Thanks a lot. I guess that so. was something, yeah. And, and I could just envision <laughs> you, Ben, having to write this big story where the headline is Junior Johnson and, um, quote, it was available. <laughs> I can <laughs> I totally see I, that. I know. It was just like, really? I'm, can't you come up with something just a little bit better than that? You know? But he said, no, that's the story, and I, I'm sticking to it. I just that, It was just available, and I chose it. And there you go. Okay. Uh, let's move on to something. Else. There you go. <laughs> you know? And he could make a big story when he wanted to make a big story, that's Ben. True. And when he didn't want to, 
He wasn't going to give him more than three words. Um, that's true. Yeah, so, he was good at three to five words. That's right. Just like Chase Elliott now. Um, if you look at the history of our track of the week as well, uh, Junior Johnson did not race on this racetrack because the Cup Series didn't go there until 1974, so about a decade after Junior hung it up as a driver. But Pocono Raceway, Long Pond, Pennsylvania, um, a place where uh, my buddy James Tyler went for years and years and years um, to see, hopefully, to see Dale Earnhardt Jr. win. I can't remember if he did or not. I think, I think James like went every year, like starting like through 2013. I, I like to think he went for one of them in 2014. I'll say he did, even if he didn't. Um, but he's a big Earnhardt fan. Earnhardt's had a lot of success at Pocono, but the 11 car has as well. Um, looking at some of the winners who won at Pocono, Cale Yarborough was the first winner for Junior Johnson in that 11 car at Pocono in 1979. Daryl Waltrip bagged one in 1981 in that uh, gorgeous Buick. And then, you know, a little bit more recently, uh, some rookie in the 11 car named Denny Hamlin won the spring race as a rookie, and he won the summer race as a rookie at Pocono. He's also the defending winner at Pocono. He's won two of the last three. So a lot of success in the 11 car at Pocono. But Ben, when I think of Pocono Raceway, this is probably recency bias. Um, I say recency in the fact they haven't won a race as a team there since 2014. But Hendrick Motorsports in the mid-2010s at Pocono Raceway, this strangely shaped two-and-a-half-mile speedway super speedway ish kind of oval with turns that could be three turns could be four could be five it depends on who you ask well it depended it didn't matter who you asked in the mid 2010s Hendrick Motorsports dominated at Pocono from fall 2012 through 2014 Jeff Gordon Jimmy Johnson Casey Kane Dale Earnhardt Jr. Dale Earnhardt Jr. five wins in a row for Hendrick there but it's been a place been and and this isn't very typical of a lot of racetracks where nobody's really had a handle on Pocono for a long period of time from a team's perspective. Um, you could say Hendrick did in the eighties cause Tim Richmond won three in a row there, but Ben typically from what we've seen at this racetrack, given how unique it is, um, you know, it, it takes a lot to really hit on a setup there. And it seems like maybe it's just the fact that the, the, the straightaways are so wide. It, it promotes passing, even on even if the aero package is uh, you know going to take that back a little bit, but it seems like that place has always had some unpredictable racing. Um, yeah, what are it, your thoughts on Pocono? Yeah, it sure has. And and uh, Pocono, you're right, built 1974, and uh, strangely enough, it was built on a spinach farm. And to have spinach, you got to have a lot of rain, and never quite figured that out. But I mean, the land was available, and it's been an incredibly neat racetrack since it opened in in '74. And and what what is so cool about it, when you think about, as you touched on, what you think about on a racetrack, obviously, to get back to the start finish line, you get a four turns, right? Well, Pocono mm-hmm. and Joe Mattioli, the late Dr. Joe Mattioli, who designed it and and opened the track, said, "No, nah, let's just do this. Let's try something different and go with three turns." So. You're right. You have a very, very long uh, sweeping front stretch. I mean, you could land probably, I'm just going to go out there on a limb. I think you could probably land a 737 maybe. I mean, you could land a big airplane. Let's say it that way. All right. Big, big place. Okay. Then you, so you're, you're doing, once you've, you've got your speed up to what, gosh, I don't know what the speeds are off the top of my head, like 160, 170. And then you go into that one tiny, tiny little turn down there and turn one, I mean, you got to have some serious brakes on your car. And I remember 
don't remember the year, but Jeff Gordon had a really bad crash there one year. And, I think it was 05, the, I think. 05, yeah, and a brake failure, and it's scary stuff because when he was trying to get through that turn, fortunately, thank the good Lord he wasn't hurt, but really crashed hard there. And, and so you're coming off of two, you're, got, you're having to gear up, uh, of course, or excuse me, turn one. See, I missed a turn there. That's okay. Turn one, you go into turn two, the tunnel turn, as they call it, and then you're back. It was a triangular. It's it's a, a neat racetrack. And, yeah. and, of course, there's been some bizarre, crazy things that have happened there. They've had animals get on the racetrack there. And, again, uh, you shift. You 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 upshift and you downshift on an oval track, right. which is unheard of in a stock car. Right. And I've heard other drivers and, and crew members, crew chiefs, say the best way to test for – uh, Indianapolis is to go to Pocono because it's very similar, just missing a turn. But I mean, you can sort of set up both of those racetracks together with your gear ratios and your transmission and, and the shifting, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, it's just a neat, I mean, neat place. And again, bizarre things have happened there. Uh, you know, uh, one, the one thing that comes to mind, it was 1992 when Kyle Petty, Davey Allison racing for the lead there and, and a fan, uh, decided to, to bet his buddy to see if he could get across the racetrack. Oh Lord! And he did make it, but that that was going to be a really scary deal. And and of course the you know the sheriff's department, all the sheriff's deputies went back in the woods and found him. And yes, he was had had a few beers too many and spent a little time in jail there. But that was pretty scary. I remember Kyle saying he was leading, and he looked up and said, "Oh my Lord, there's a fan on the racetrack." And he made it across the track without getting injured or hurt or killed. But I mean, it's like, what would possess anyone to do something that stupid? I hope it was more than 20 bucks. Oh, Lord. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And then you had the times when they would have deer on the racetrack. I think Neil Bonnet, you know, sadly hit a deer there. And his comment back to the media that day was, I'm sorry, folks, I just killed Bambi. And because uh, <laughs> he, he hit him with the racetrack, I mean, with the race yeah. car. And I mean, again, the deer probably had one beer too many. Maybe, you know, (laughs) I don't know. I'll tell you a quick one about this. I mean, we're we're trying to share some funny stories today. I don't know how we got off on some of these, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby Allison told me one time he was leading the race with about 10 laps to go. This is 83, 84. He was very good at Pocono too, by the way. Yep. And, uh, the Harold Kinder was the flagman that day, and Harold was the flagman for NASCAR for many years before he passed away. But there was, you know, there's all kinds of signals for these flags to let people know to move over. To, you know, slower car, faster cars coming. You're a slow car, move over. Of course, the checker flag, the yellow flag, the white flag. Well, he didn't have a flag to tell. Bobby that there was a deer on the backstretch. So as Bobby would come by, the brown flag. Yeah, the brown flag. As Bobby would come by, he would, Harold would do his fingers on the sides of his head like there's a deer. <laughs> and Bobby said, in all honesty, he said, every time I went by the start-finish line there, I'd just shoot him the finger and say, hey, you're number one. So he 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 went and shot him the figure. Like, what are you trying to tell me? You know, I'm trying to win the race. What are you trying to tell me? So he goes back around again. Didn't see the deer. He was off in the grass. And, uh, so, so, uh, he comes back by flag man does the thing is on the side of his head again, saying there's a deer on the back stretch, shoots him the <laughs> finger again. <laughs> I was like, what are you trying to tell me? So anyway, as it turned out, Bobby went to victory lane 
And of course, Harold went to Victory Lane and got a big kick. He said, what were you trying to tell me? I said, he said, I was trying to tell you there's a deer on the back stretch, not to hit the deer. He said, well, you need to get a flag for that. I didn't want you. He said, I didn't mean to shoot you the figure, but I thought you were just giving me a hard time, you know, because I was in front. Yeah. They were good buddies anyway, you know, and uh, just funny stuff has happened up there. But I, I've been to Pocono many, many times. A beautiful racetrack. Wonderful, wonderful people up there. I love to go up. And one time I did try to order a hot dog at a restaurant and ask them to put mayonnaise on it. And they thought, I thought I was going to get thrown out of the place. Okay. So they just didn't do mayonnaise on their hot dogs. You put mayonnaise on your hot dog? Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Seriously? Like how, how did, how does that start? I've never heard of that. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, about the same way that I would make mayonnaise sandwiches as a kid after I got home from school. And Richard Petty said he used to do the same thing because oh, yeah. they didn't have any meat in between the the bread. So he, he did it a with a sandwich. mayonnaise sandwich and pepper because uh, I, I heard a story one time of Kyle saying that the king would make a, a mayonnaise sandwich with pepper and then yeah. he would have a glass of milk and he'd lay down sleep on the floor for about five hours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and so I would. I just like mayonnaise on a hot dog, and I, I th- the waitress looked at me like you're out of your mind. I mean, we I've never do heard that. Of that. Here. I've we never, don't do that in Pennsylvania. So, so not it's not like coleslaw. It's just mayonnaise. Yeah, just mayonnaise, man. Yeah. What else do you yeah. put on it? Oh, ketchup, mustard, slaw. If I have it, yeah, just you know, and chili. Just break bad, man. Try it once. Try it. You'll, you'll mayonnaise on a hot dog. I'm not much of a mayonnaise guy. The only time I like mayonnaise <laughs> is with coleslaw. If I mean, obviously, okay. it's it's an right. ingredient in coleslaw, so I gotta like it because I love coleslaw. But sure, I've never yeah, I've never heard yeah. of that. Yeah, there you go. You just put the put the slaw on the hot dog and like the white slaw with the mayonnaise in it. You're good, man. That's a lot it, of mayonnaise, I man. I promise you'll live through it. <laughs> Try it. It's good. <laughs> but okay, okay. So, hey, did you ever tell them that at Martinsville? They'd have thrown you out of there. Oh no, yeah, that's true. They they would have, but uh, yeah, the Martinsville hot dog is pretty standard. I think it's got the uh, the chili, the the red slaw, the you know mustard. the ketchup and the mustard. Yeah, your, that's it. But, yeah. Hey. But they did have the little, you know, little mayonnaise packs. I could actually slide a little mayonnaise on there without starting the, you know, world conflict. <laughs> yeah, I just I've never heard of that. Like, I mean, even when you go to a, a baseball game, most of, most of the time the the toppings they have are. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting choked up. Just in shock. Um, so most of the, the toppings you'd see are like relish and mustard and ketchup and onions and coleslaw. I didn't know. I mean. You know, like it's very common in Finland, I believe. Finland is a place where uh, they have uh, mayonnaise with their French fries. It's just they don't they don't oh, dip cool. it with ketchup. They, yeah, they don't dip it with ketchup. They they just they do it in, in with mayonnaise. And I think it's I think it's Finland that does that. But you're honestly the first person I've ever heard of who, like, <laughs> willingly puts mayonnaise on a hot dog. That that's so, a new development to me. You know, my pants are too big, and I put mayonnaise on a hot dog. So you're learning things about me, my friend, that you never knew before. Hey, that's 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 why we do this, right? That's why we do yeah. this. You just never know what you're going to get on these on these podcasts for sure. Yeah, and apparently you never know what, what you'll get when somebody tries to order a hot dog at a at a diner in, in Pocono. Apparently, yeah, that's that's not that's, that's, that wasn't wasn't pretty. Let's put it that way. That's funny. I thought yeah. I was going to get thrown out of the place. Well, I mean, you know, I I, I share in her a surprise because i had yeah. never heard of that I mean, before but that's know, never know so. yeah hey i mean you know people like different stuff on them somebody probably likes a tomato sauce or something on their ice cream on their hot dog somewhere sure. you, know, I, you just never know can't can't judge it till it's, you try it and have it tried listen, yet but i might it's up there it's up there with dale jr having dorito sandwiches okay i mean you crush up the doritos and then you you put mayonnaise on both sides of the bread it's a dale jr thing so 
you know. And then you can also go with pickle, I mean, with uh, peanut butter on cucumbers. But that's another. Ew. That's Ew. another topic for another show. That is offensive. <laughs> I'm offended by the idea of that. Oh, now, that's Junior's, good. Yeah, I'll try it. Junior's okay, potato chip poker. sandwich. <laughs> Junior's, hold on a minute. Junior's potato chip sandwich. I'll defend that because yeah, yeah. Now, I wouldn't just have it with mayonnaise. But like you know, when I was a kid, even you know, you you get whatever chips you got and you put them in your sandwich, you know, and it adds that flavor to it, and adds that crunch. I mean, I still do that every now and then. You know, um, I, I don't good. think there's anything wrong with that. I make my lunch sometimes at work and I make like a ham sandwich with. Um, some pickles and mustard and I'll uh you know pack some jalapeno chips or something and throw four or five chips on the sandwich too you know I don't think there's anything wrong with that but um no. some of these you know, concoctions you're talking about will change your life I promise it'll, it'll change man. your life it, yeah it's it's uh it's definitely blown my mind I'll say that yeah, for sure. okay so uh poking up it's yeah. it's a beautiful three-turn racetrack flat uh from what I understand fun to drive if you have brakes yeah and um yeah we've we've seen some good things happen there sadly we've seen some not so good things when of course bobby allison's last race you know, 1988 june 19th of 88 when he crashed there and yeah just about took his life uh when he was hit in the door uh, by another driver and then you had the davy allison crash there in 92 um yeah when he flipped the car when when he and daryl waltrip got together so yeah there's some good times bad times but here's a track fact a lot of fans may not know the first year richard petty was the winner there uh in 1974 uh-huh. uh it was delayed because of rain and so when they came back through after the second when he when he actually won i think he stayed either as a day before or the day after because of all the weather. But anyway, he won an ARCA race there huh. in the number 43 car. And uh, Richard Petty did. I don't know if you knew that or not. But, I did not. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he just – they were just – it was a holdover kind of thing. And it was a chance to come back through, I think, and, uh, and, and you know, take a win there. So, yeah, he, he actually drove the 43 car to not only a cup win there but also won an ARCA race. Yeah, and, and – uh... More recently, Trevor Bain won an ARCA race there. I think Kyle Larson won an ARCA race there. Uh, when the ARCA series has raced at Pocono on the same weekend as the Cup Series, it's it's a good opportunity for a lot of younger drivers to get seat time at a racetrack that, like we said earlier in this episode, Ben, not a lot of comparisons. That You can't make an apples-to-apples apples comparison to Pocono. The closest you can get is Indianapolis. But if you're a rookie, and particularly before the Xfinity Series race at Indy, then you didn't even have that luxury of racing there beforehand. So running the ARCA race, I think, has given guys, even as far back as the King, probably, a, a good opportunity to, to test out some things, you know, to, to test out their, their driving skill there, to just get more seat time, to test out a setup. Uh, no different than somebody might test out putting uh, pickles on a peanut butter sandwich or whatever it was yeah. that you said, which is I just don't make any sense. <laughs> still to me in shock for that. I, hey, yeah, I need to say this, Aaron. My apologies. I made a mistake. I said Arca. It wasn't uh-huh. Arca. It was USAC. Okay, I, I misspoke. USAC stock USAC cars. Race. Yeah, that's okay. Yes. That's uh, I've seen. Uh, so I was actually at a um, a classic car auction uh, eight years ago in charlotte from rk motors rob kaufman former uh, co-owner of michael walter racing and i think he also bought in a chip ganassi racing um he had this big classic car auction one of the cars that was sold i believe was uh, aj foyt's usac stock car which is this uh old bright orange camaro which looked really cool and then they also sold uh dale earnhardt seniors uh good wrench chevy nova number eight which dale jr has been lovingly restoring 
um, over the last year or so, which is super cool. Um, I don't think that car ever raced at Pocono, um, but you know, I digress. The, I, the, the, if you look up the USAC stock car series, pretty cool because you think USAC, you think sprint cars. And if you go back uh, a little ways and you, you think Indy cars, um, but there was a USAC stock car series that, that was around for, uh, for quite a bit. Um, you know, and, and gosh, man, we've covered so much today. Um, yes. I've learned a lot, uh, about you, about your passion, you know? <laughs> so some of these things, if I, when I go to the lunchroom, um, just cross them off the menu. Cause I don't want to lose my appetite when I see peanut butter and cucumber sandwich or whatever. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'll, you know what? I'm going to hold off and I'm going to try a mayonnaise hot dog when I go to the lunchroom. You should. And we and we talk about racing, Ben, because I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. We'll grill some hot dogs, and uh, yeah. I'll even put some potato chips in the hot dog too. I will I will leave that open to whatever whatever anybody else suggests. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. We'll cut that. Oh, your your hot dog. We'll cut it in fourths. Okay, <laughs> and you can have one of those fourths. And if you don't like it, no worries. I'll eat the other three. How about that? <laughs> hey, that's we're a good plan. Good. Um, if you we're got chili, good. though, I'll just drown it out with chili and mustard. Hey, so I'll just know, say, yeah, I, I, try, I had some on it. You know, I'll just like put a dab on there and just like dump chili, slaw, and, and mustard and relish. And I, I like relish on my hot dogs. I used to think it was yeah. gross when I was a kid, but I love it now. Yeah, a lot of hot yeah, dog yeah, talk well, today, but that's okay. Well, you that's know true. What? You got to do things to you know enjoy life and try things and. You know, <laughs> hey, and, and you know what? Hot dogs are a big part of the racing experience. Yes, when you is. when they you are. attend a race, you know, and you think about getting food, the number one thing on most people's list is a hot dog. My mom, when we used to go to the Winston when I was a kid, would make racetrack hot dogs. What she called them, and she'd put them in a cooler, and that's what we'd have when we were at the racetrack. Um, mm-hmm. A lot well, of people have hot dogs at the racetrack, and some apparently even put mayonnaise on them. Right? Yeah, it could be. And you know <laughs> what? Here's the thing. I'll I'll end it with this one. Okay. The my mother. I love my mother so much. She passed away in 99, but she would make, when we'd go to Darlington, she'd make these coolers of, uh, that we'd take to the racetrack. She'd make sandwiches, uh, some chips, but she'd make these homemade brownies, and we'd always go by one of the grocery stores and uh-huh. get their cheapest cola because they were like 10 cents a piece. Yeah. We really couldn't afford the Cokes and the Pepsis and stuff, so we get the real cheap stuff. And I, I don't know. It's just some of those fond, fond memories of going to Darlington as a kid. And, you know, seeing the cars and smelling the rubber and just oh, the yeah. gas. You know what I'm saying? You just, I, I still exactly have that in mean. my mind. And in the cooler. But the, what put it over the top was mom's awesome brownies. And just we didn't have hot dogs and mayonnaise that day. But we had some some great sandwiches and just some family time. Mom, I mean, mom didn't go. But it was my dad and myself and brothers and a couple friends. And we just had such a good time. And I still remember those days. So, hey, food is a big part of racing. And but try mayonnaise on a hot dog you, you'll you'll live you'll love it i promise it'll be good now you got me craving brownies uh there you go. <laughs> change the game um yeah. ben i think uh finally uh like somebody finishing their plate at a diner in pocono i think we finally crossed the finish line on episode 11 it has been a blast as always chatting up with you let's do it again mm-hmm. soon we're gonna be right, back sir. With episode 12, Faster Than Ben Can Throw Mayonnaise on a Hot Dog in Pocono. <laughs> there and you go. In the meantime, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your feedback on on some of the things we talk about, on our opinions on food, apparently, on what you like on a hot dog, um, what you think of what Ben likes on a hot dog. And um, 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't even know how to end it off that. That's that, that's now you got me thinking about like that's there what I'm gonna, go. I'm gonna tell everybody at work tomorrow. We're gonna start talking about what we have on hot dogs now. This conversation okay. has sparked. It's created a, its whole new persona now. Yeah, <laughs> Think, things happen when they unexpectedly when you just don't know they're coming. <laughs> that's that's right. They do, but it's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. So in the meantime, you know, I uh, hope you guys enjoy everything that's going on in the NASCAR world right now. Have a hot dog when you're watching the race as well. You know what? If you're not even watching a race, watch one on YouTube. Make a hot dog as well. Why not? Um, yeah. But in the meantime, for Ben White. I'm Aaron Burns. Thank you so much for listening to a riveting episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back very soon. But until then, so long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.